So we're just following on from where we've been, and we now read that Sarah, verse 1 of chapter 23, was 127 years old. But all these are the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, the same as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. The first thing I want to just highlight here is we're told that these are the years of the life of Sarah. And I just want to highlight the fact that when she got to the end of that 127 years and she died, that was the end of Sarah. And I say that because in heaven we're going to get new names. Names that God knows. You see, the names we have now are names that our parents gave us and so on. But we find that in Revelation we're told that God has a name for us. What that is, we don't know. We're not sure yet. We'll find out. Um, But how we'll refer to each other, how we'll know each other in heaven, uh, we'll we'll see. Um, But that's just the earthly element of Sarah that had come to an end at this point. Of course, from a spiritual perspective... We are all created as eternal beings, and we have to make that choice before we get to the end of our days of where we're going to spend that eternity. And it is a choice that we get to make. And for us, of course, since the cross, since Calvary, we have that choice of putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All those who died prior to the cross, I believe, still had to make that decision. Prior to the cross, uh, Scripture reveals that They would have gone down to a a place um, referred to in the New Testament as Abraham's bosom. Um, Jesus referred to it as paradise, um, but clearly a place that, that wasn't a place of torment or suffering. But they waited there until Jesus, when he died, descended to that place and presented himself. Because even Adam and Abraham, who we're looking at, Sarah here, now, Isaac and Jacob and Daniel and David and all these kind of characters in the Old Testament, the only way they can go to heaven is if they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because there is salvation in no other name. So what we seem to find in the New Testament is that there was this holding place, for want of a better expression, where those that had died prior to the cross went and they waited. And they waited until that time that As Jesus died, we're told that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. There is a heresy going around that says that he carried on suffering for for three days and battled with the devil and so on. That's nonsense. Firstly, the devil is not in Hades. It's not his home. The Bible makes it clear that for now the devil is the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's roaming around this world. He's not in hell. Hell was created as a place for the devil to go to ultimately and for the angels that send. So this kind of medieval concept of Satan sitting on some sort of throne in hell is totally unbiblical. Satan does not live or rule in hell. He doesn't want to go there any more than anyone else. But there was clearly a part, a section of this place. Uh, in the Old Testament we have various names. Uh, it's referred to as the pit sometimes, um, or Hades. And the Greek, uh, we have uh, Sheol uh, that's mentioned. Um, so these, these ideas that are, that are used referring to the same place Jesus said to the thief on the cross today you'll be with me in paradise and again as Jesus died we know he went down to the lower parts of the earth as we're told as Paul uh, tells us but I believe that the reason Jesus went was simply to present himself to these saints so that they could say yes you are the one that we've been looking forward to the Old Testament saints knew even Job knew that he would see his Redeemer. 
And so then Jesus uh, seems to carry this place, led captivity captive, takes what was there and moves it now to heaven. So any saints that now die since the ascension, since that point, any saints that die now go immediately into the presence of the Lord in heaven. And that's where those that have died before us, the Old Testament saints are now there, anyone that has died since the cross that has put their faith in Jesus, they stay there on their way until the time of the rapture, when Jesus will bring with him those that sleep, those that have died already, and then those that are alive and remain will be caught up and together. We will go back to that place. We'll meet the Lord in the air and go back to heaven where we'll receive our rewards and so on. So just a little side uh, thing there. But we carry on. Verse 2, Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, the same as Hebron. So now they've moved back up to Hebron after their little trip around, staying in the land of the Philistines and then down to um, uh, Beersheba. They've gone back up to Hebron now where they had been. Uh, and we're told Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Uh, and just to uh, clarify here, Colin Delich make the point that he, he hadn't been away somewhere else and he gets news. No, he'd probably been out in the field or working or something. But he hears that Sarah's died. So he immediately goes back home uh, and obviously we're told and to weep for her. A couple of comments about Sarah. She's the only woman in scripture whose age is mentioned, interestingly enough. Uh, just as an aside, uh, she died 37 years after the birth of Isaac. But her, her contribution to scripture, uh, we see, is this. First of all, we're told that she was a wife that submitted to her husband. Now, in today's culture, to say that, people get uncomfortable. Because the idea of a woman submitting to a husband, is, oh, so we shouldn't, that's, you know, equal rights, equal opportunities, all this kind of stuff. People don't understand what scripture means when it says these things. You see, to submit is simply to get under the subpart another's mission. That's the idea of the mitpah. It comes from that, the same root word. It's to get under another's mission. To get behind someone. To support them. It doesn't mean that you willingly become inferior or you become a slave of someone or so on. That's not the idea. Because in the New Testament we're all told to submit to each other. To get under each other's mission, to get behind each other, to support each other. And we find that this is what is said of Sarah, that she supported her husband. We do find, of course, that she doubted God's promise. And we see a lot of these things are are given to us in Scripture. So many of these characters of whom many good things are said, we also see the reality that they didn't always get it right, that they stumbled at times. And she did clearly doubt God's promise back in Genesis 18, but then we see her believing God's promise in Genesis 21. And we kind of make that transition, that journey, so often that we doubt things and then the Lord does things and works in our lives and we come to that place of trusting him. We see, of course, her giving birth to Isaac. And in many respects, this is such a big part of God's plan, that she was willing, she was faithful, she was obedient. And that even as a 90-year-old woman, she was able to conceive and bring forth this child, this one that God had promised that they would have. And then in First Peter we read this, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well, and I'm not afraid with any amazement. Again, this idea of just her willing to, to submit, to get under Abraham's mission to support him. To show him respect. Of course, Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians that there's a role for women, there's a role for men. And particularly in the husband and wife scenario, men are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's unconditionally. 
to lay their lives down for their wives. And my dad, my pastor back in Deal, used to say there's not a woman on this earth that wouldn't want to submit to a husband that loved her like that. In Hebrews 11, verse 11, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. What a statement. You see, it was through faith. It's not, at this stage of her life, seemingly a natural desire for her wanted to conceive and have a child. I mean, no doubt there was that she would have loved to have had children. But this is a faith thing, trusting God. Because she judged him faithful. You know, people talk about faith. But faith on its own, is what is it? What does it mean? It's about faith in God. You can't just have faith. The people in the world often talk about having faith in something, but it's the object of the faith that's the important thing. And of course, God is faithful. So if your faith is in God, well then, it's powerful. It has meaning. We've seen it again, as I said, Abraham has returned from Hebron after that stay in Beersheba. Uh, He's come back now to this grove of memory. That's where he'd been uh, back in Genesis 13. Uh, we saw back there. Uh, the name uh, Kirjath Arba is literally the city of Arba. It gets this name actually later on and it's being applied to it here. Uh, it was the city of Arba, uh, the Anakites, and his family who had actually arrived there in the time of Abraham. They moved there later. So as this is being recorded for us, this city has now become known by that name, which is why it's given uh, the title in this verse here. We find that Joshua actually captured it and restored it to its original name. So you can see roughly on the map there, uh, somewhere kind of almost in the centre, but just to the side of the Dead Sea, uh, you have this town of Hebron, as it's uh, known. Verse 3, And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke unto the sons of Heth, saying, I'm a stranger and a sojourner with you. Just want to highlight this as well. Even at this point, Abraham has not yet in fact, he will never put down roots, as it were, in the land. He remains a stranger and a sojourner the whole time he's there. As does Isaac, as does Jacob. It's not until Joshua comes back in that the land actually becomes their own. But at this time, he's a sojourner, just, just dwelling there, living in tents and so on. Of course, we have that wonderful uh, verse in Hebrews that tells us Abraham was looking for a different city whose builder and maker is God. The idea that really, you know, we're all of us, we should get our eyes off the, the world here and now. And even this morning, we've talked about a bunch of good reasons why we should do that. And get our eyes onto God, onto what he has for us, on his ways, and, and so on. Uh, and he says, I'm a stranger, a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. I just want to highlight this, this phrase here, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Okay, we're going to come back to that in a second. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. Notice they just say, bury thy dead. Not, they don't say out of sight, just bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from the his sepulchre, but that thou may bury thy dead. And of course, you get to see Abraham's kind of uh, standing in the community as these people say, look, anywhere, you just choose, it's yours. But we read that Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land. And you'll see in a moment that this is kind of a, a meeting seemingly taking place at the, in the kind of, with the town council and the gates of the city and even to the children of Heath. And he commanded with them saying, if it be your mind that I should bury my dead. And notice again, Abraham has that, has that expression, out of my sight. 
hear me and entreat for me to Ephron the son of Zohor, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field, for as much money as it is worth, he shall give it to me for a possession of a burying place among you. And we'll carry on with the text in a moment. I just want to just go back to that expression out of my sight. I was just pondering this and thinking, yeah, what does it mean? And I, I don't know, but I just get the feeling here that Abraham was wanting to be able to bury his dead out of sight so they can get on with his journey. An actual fact for all of us, if we are Christians, I think this morning, we look around, we've, we've come to that place of realizing that the Lord is who he says he is. And we come to that place of realizing that that old life comes to an end when we come to Christ. The problem is, a lot of us bury our dead right alongside us. We bury that old life just in sight, just in case we need to go back from time to time. And I think what Abraham's doing is, is just moving this, this kind of, this, this memory of what was out of his sight so that he can press forward. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying he wanted to forget about Sarah, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But I think the Holy Spirit has put this in here for us as a little reminder that particularly for us, our new lives, we should bury our old life out of sight. It should be so far away from us that we don't look back at it, we don't want it. Remember, of course, Lot's wife who looked over her shoulder at all she was leaving behind. Yeah, we've got to be willing to to let that old life go and to move on in our journey with the Lord. Verse 10 says, And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham, In the audience of the children of Heth, so they're all the town council gathered around, even all of them that were at the, ga- uh, the gate of his city. So again, the gate was typically where the town council would meet. Saying, Nay, my Lord, hear me. The field I give thee, and the cave that is therein, I give it thee in the presence of the sons of my people. Give I it thee, bury thy dead. So he's just saying, look, Abraham, you know, we, we, we respect you, we honor you, you're very highly esteemed in our midst, so just take whatever you want. But notice here how Abraham deals with the world. Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land, and he spoke unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, but if thou will give it, I will, pray thee, hear me, I will give thee money for the field. Take it with me and I will bury my dead there. You see, Abraham won't just take from the world. Even though they're offering. Why? Well, we, we've already we've seen a situation a little bit like this when we had the, in Genesis 14, with the battle of the kings. Abraham wouldn't just take from the world because the moment you do, the world tries to put some claim of ownership over you. We need to be very cautious about what the world gives us. Abraham was saying, no, no, I, I, will, I will buy. I will pay. And Ephraim answered Abraham, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron, and Abraham waved to Ephron the silver which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. Now, of course, at this particular time, they were happy to say, just take the land, have it. But Abraham knew that sometime down the road there would be a question mark. And if he had legitimately bought it, if he paid for it, the world couldn't come back and say, well, no, now we kind of own you because we gave you this, therefore you owe us something. 
See, that's the way the world is. The world will always try and expect something of us. They want us to follow their ways or their ideas, their thoughts. Many examples we could cite, but let's move on. And the field of Ephron, which was uh, in Machpelah, which was before memory, the field and the cave which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field that were in all the borders round about were made sure unto Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before memory, and the same is Hebron in the land of Canaan, and the field and the cave uh, that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. So Abraham actually been purchased his place. Now, today, there's this big building that you can see there, and uh, this kind of area that... Um, uh, typically Muslims uh, occupy. Uh, of course, to them, Abraham is still uh, venerated. Um, but there's this building, I'm not sure whether it's actually a mosque as such, um, but this is there, um, supposedly the, the actual place uh, in the what would have been the field of Machpelah and the caves at the end of it. And inside, uh, you go down, and there's actually a place where supposedly you can actually go down into the caves uh, that's there this day. Uh, I'll share with that, that with you for whatever it's worth. What we will find is that this will become the burying place, not just of Sarah as it is now, but Abraham himself will be buried here. And then, of course, Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob's wife Leah will also be buried. And then eventually Jacob also ends up being buried in this place too. Into chapter 24 then. And we read, And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Well, straight away there's a partial fulfillment of the promises that God had given him that Abraham will be blessed, and clearly we see that straight away. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house. Now notice the eldest servant here is not named. That's significant. We later find who this servant is, but, but here we're just told this, this eldest servant. is actually this Eliezer of Damascus we've already been uh, introduced to, but edited out of the text, purely we're told eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all he had. He says... But I pray thee thy hand under my thigh. Now that's going to seem to be kind of a strange thing for us. But culturally this was the way that they would go about making kind of an agreement and a promise and so on. And I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my sons of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Abraham clearly understanding God's plan in this and the danger of allowing Isaac to marry one of the children of the land, who were, some of them, many of them actually, were descendants of the Nephilim, and so on. But thou shalt go unto my country, unto my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure, the woman will be not willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring my son again unto the land from whence thou came? You know, he's saying, well, what happens if I go, and I find someone, but she doesn't want to come here? Shall I take Isaac there? Verse 6, Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou bring not my son thither again. So, verse 7, The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spoke unto me, and that swore unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee. (laughs) I was talking already this morning about the God of angel armies. And thou shalt... Take a wife unto my son from, uh, sorry, uh, this is, and thou shalt take a wife 
unto my son from thence, that if the woman be not willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. So Abraham makes it very clear that God is going to go with you. God's going to send his angel with you. And actually you will be prosperous, but just so we're clear, if for any reason that doesn't happen, which is going to, and Abraham clearly speaking in faith here, that it will happen, He's just releasing his servant of this obligation. But he says, make it very clear, don't take Isaac back to that place. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning that matter. And the servant took ten camels, the camels of his master, and departed for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, unto the city of Nahor. Mesopotamia, I'm sure you already know, it just means between the rivers. Uh, this is the place between the Tigris, between the Euphrates. Uh, and they come to this place in Mesopotamia. Down, right down the bottom you can see Ur of the Chaldees, which is where Abraham had originally come from. This place where they were familiar with God and gods and idol worship and all sorts of things. And it's from there that Abraham one morning packs up and says, I'm leaving, God's called me. And leaves on his journey up to Haran at the top and then eventually comes down into Canaan. But now Abraham makes his journey, or Abraham's servant, sorry, makes his journey back down to Ur of the Chaldees. To go to the family of Abraham to see if he can find a wife now for Abraham's son Isaac. And we're told, and he made his camels to kneel down without the city. So this, this journey's taken a while for him to get there. The camels, no doubt, very thirsty camels, I'm sure you're aware, drink a lot. And they get there. And we're told uh, it was at the time of evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee that I may drink, and she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. This is bizarre. Because if you have any concept of what he's actually saying here, you realize just what an incredible prayer request this really is. And of course it gives us kind of an insight into the kind of God that we serve, that God is willing to respond and answer this request in the way that the the servant here puts it. You see, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that as the women of the towns come out and they they come to draw water and and so on, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that they see a visitor, a stranger there and say, would you like a drink? That's just kind of hospitality, that's no problem. But to offer... To let his camels drink. That's incredible. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But that's the request. And it's, a, it's an incredible request, as you'll see. Then it came to pass that before he had done speaking, that behold, Rebekah came out. Notice it's before he had done speaking. You see, God knows the things that we're going to say before we even say them. God was already answering his prayer before he prayed it. That Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother with her picture upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon. A virgin neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. So obviously, Eliezer's now looking on. He's seeing all this happen. And we thought, and the servant ran to meet her. 
and said, let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher. And she said, drink, my lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher uh, upon her hand and then this just bucket down into the well, pulls up the, the water and gave him drink. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and drew for all the camels and the man wondering at her held his peace to whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. I love this. This is one of those, Lord, if, if you could do this, 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 and this, and this, oh, and, and that, then, then I believe that you've answered my prayer. And all of that happens. And he goes, Lord, is this you? You know, often we do these kind of things. You know, we'll ask the Lord to lead us or guide us, and we'll pray for a certain situation or certain something. And then the Lord will bring it to pass. Bring about a certain situation or whatever. And we go, oh, is this the Lord? Should, should I? Or... Yeah, we need to get better at, at listening to God, at, at hearing Him. But understand that we have a God that delights in responding to us. Who delights in answering our prayers. And God will often bring around situations to confirm that He's responding, that He's answered our prayers. Now I just want to talk a, a little bit about these camels. According to the California Academy of Sciences, uh, they say this, a very thirsty camel, such as one just off a long, hot caravan, which is just like in our situation, can go 35 gallons, 135 liters of water in six minutes. Now, one record-holding camel, I, I don't know how they measure this, whether this is in the Guinness Book of Records or not, I don't know. Um, I didn't know the camels were that bothered. But one record-holding camel drank more than 50 gallons in one day. It's 200 litres of water. So they can go for a long, long time without drinking, but when they drink, they drink. The incredible thing is that Rebecca offers to, feed, or to, to provide drink for these camels. And it's not just one camel, there's ten camels. Okay, just to give us kind of some kind of scale, I mean, you're familiar with kind of the two litre bottles of drink typically that we have. So let's assume that she can draw ten litres every five minutes. It's going to take her over one hour to water one camel. And you've got to think, she's got to lower the, the bucket down into the water, she's got to pull it all back up again, empty it into the trough. I mean, once or twice and we're probably worn out. She's obviously a very strong woman to be able to do this. She'd need to be drawing water for over 11 hours to water all the camels. It's no surprise that the servant looks at this and is kind of like pretty amazed. So why do we have this example of scripture? Did she actually do this? Well, maybe the camels just didn't have that much to drink at this point. Unlikely, but whatever the scenario, somehow she manages to provide certainly some water for the camels. Well, we're told until they'd finished drinking. Now, you can only assume that supernaturally the Lord restricted their drinking, otherwise you'd have never got through this task. So why do we have this task laid out? Why was it the servant asked for this? Well, it's all because of, I believe, a model that the Lord is laying down for us. that is very instructive. See, we've got a, a type, of course, we see in all of these things that Abraham is a type of the father. That Isaac is a type of the son. Eliezer here, a type of the Holy Spirit sent to gather the bride for the son. 
But we see also in this that that the Father sends an unnamed servant. And the Holy Spirit, of course, never draws attention to himself. In John 15, 26, we read, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. Howbeit, when the Spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come, and he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. So, the Father sends his unnamed servant to find a bride for the Son. Again, and I will pray the Father he shall give you another comforter, that then he may abide with you forever. This is one of the most wonderful promises we have. The Holy Spirit comes to us as believers to be with us forever. But even the Spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. John 14, 26 says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Okay, so, the Father sends an unnamed servant to find a bride for the Son. And notice that the unnamed servant uses ten beasts of burden, which is exactly what camels are, to go and bring the bride back. And in the process, endows her with gifts. What are these camels represented of? Well, remember John 16, verses 8 to 11, we're told there that when he is come, the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. So, again, these beasts of burden are there to bring the bride back. And that last point there, that the bride, notice, tries to satisfy the beast of burden. But eventually, after leaving her old life, as we're going to see in a moment, It's the beasts of burden that bring her to the awaiting bridegroom. What's the the parallel? Well, quite simply, the law. The law is a beast of burden. The law can never be satisfied. Of course, there are ten commandments, just as here there are ten camels. They present to us an impossible challenge. We could strive, we could try all day to satisfy the law, and we're never going to satisfy the law. And that's exactly what Paul tells us in Galatians. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. See, these camels end up bringing Rebekah back to Isaac. That we may be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Martin Luther said this, Wherefore, this is the proper and absolute use of the law. By lightning, by tempest, and by the sound of a trumpet as in Mount Sinai, to terrify, and by thundering, to beat down and rend in pieces that beast which is called the opinion of righteousness. You see, what the law does is show us that we cannot meet the challenge laid down before us. We cannot be righteous on our own effort. 
A.W. Pink says that the unsaved today are in no condition for the gospel till the law be applied to their hearts. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. Just as this unnamed servant brings these beasts of burden and Rebecca's challenges to try and satisfy them. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's a waste of time to sow seed on a ground which has never been ploughed or spaded. What the Lord does is show us that we are all guilty before God. And Spurgeon says this, one of the reasons why this soil was so uncongenial was that it was totally unprepared for the seed. There had been no ploughing before the seed was sown, no harrowing afterwards. He that sows without a plough may reap without a sickle. <laughs> You're not going to get anything. He who preaches the gospel without preaching the law may hold all the results of it in his hand. And there will be little for him to hold. We need to understand the law is a very powerful tool that, the, that God has given us. Yet we, we've effectively got two witnesses in scripture. We've got the law and the prophets. And the law is there to deal with the, the heart in a sense. To convict us of sin. The prophets are there to deal with the intellectual bit. So if people have got intellectual problems why they don't want to accept Christ, well, the prophecy that is given to us in Scripture is enough to convince intellectually, to give proof beyond any reasonable doubt. But of course the law is there to give, deal with the real heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. And the law will bring conviction. And of course, just as we have in this example here, it's the law or the camels that bring bride safely to the bridegroom it's a wonderful analogy wonderful picture that the lord has worked into this so let's just pick up and read the rest of the text it came to pass as the camels had done drinking that the man took a golden earring half a shekel weight and two bracelets for hands ten shekels weight of gold and she and said whose daughter are thou tell me i pray i pray thee is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in now girls respond quite well to jewelry i found uh, so at this point, the next verse says, And she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she brought unto Nahor. And she said, Moreover unto him, we have both straw and provident enough, and room to lodge in. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. As he realizes what God has done. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. You see, the Lord led him straight to the right place. It's incredible when we are walking with the Lord, when we're trusting him, how he directs our paths. And the damsel ran and told them of her mother's house these things. And Rebecca had a brother and his name was Laban. I'm introduced to, to Laban at this point. And Laban ran out unto the man, unto the well. And it came to pass that when he saw the earring and the bracelets upon his sister's hand, he thought, this is a wealthy chap, I'm going to make him my friend. And that's basically what happens. And when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, this, uh, Thus spoke the man unto me, that he came unto the man, and behold, he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, thou blessed of the Lord. Why, why do you stand without? For I've prepared the house and room for the camels. And the man came into the house, and he ungirded his camels and gave straw and provender for the camels and water to wash his feet and the man, men's feet uh, that were with him. So there's a few other people that are on this journey that have come with Abraham's servant, clearly there as well. And there was set meal before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told mine errand. And he said, speak on. And he said, I am Abraham's servant. And the Lord has blessed my master greatly and he's become great and has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men's servants 
and maidservants and camels and asses and Laban's thinking, yeah, okay, I'm listening to all this quite keen on the whole money side of things, Laban is. He says, and Sarah, my master's wife, bare a son to my master when she was old, and unto him has he given all that he has. And my master made me swear, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but thou shalt go to my father's house and to my kindred to take a wife unto my son. And I said unto my master, Peradventure the woman will not follow me. And he said unto me, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with thee to prosper thy way, and thou shalt take a wife from, from my son, for my son from my kindred and of my father's house. And then shall thou be clear from this mine oath when thou comest to my kindred. And if they give not thee one, then thou shalt be clear from my oath. So he's explaining now what this conversation he's had with Abraham. He's relaying this. And I came this day to the well. I said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if now thou do prosper my way which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin cometh forth to draw water, and I say to her, Give me, I pray, uh, pray thee a little water if I pitch it to drink. And she said to me, Both drink thou, and I will uh, also drink for thy camels. Let the same be the woman who the Lord has appointed out for my master's son. And before I had done speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came forth with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew water. And I said unto her, Let me drink, I pray thee. And she made haste and let down her pitcher from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. So I drank, and she made the camels drink also. And I asked her and said, Whose daughter art thou? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bare unto him. And I put the earring upon her face, <laughs> and the bracelets upon her hands and I bowed down my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham which has led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter unto his son and now recounting all of this he says and now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master tell me and if not tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Now he's relayed all of that because it's so incredible when they were sitting down and listening and seeing how the Lord has led this man. How can they come to any other conclusion that this is God that is working in this situation? And then Laban and, uh, and Bethuel answered and said, the thing proceeds from the Lord. See, that's their response. How can this be anything other than God? What a great lesson here. When we testify of God and what he has done, See the response from other people? You see, bear in mind that the servant has gone to a Gentile, idol-worshipping culture, the same as Abraham had come out from. He could have been a bit, well, I won't talk about God because they might be offended. I'll just see if I can find the woman and say that, you know. But he doesn't. He just talks about God the whole time. It's so often we make the wrong assumption that people don't want to hear about God that they already have preconceived ideas and whatever we say, that they'll reject it. And you know, maybe we'll just make it too awkward if we spoke about God. But this servant, all he does is speak of the Lord. You know, once again, there's a great parallel with the Holy Spirit. All he does is just point people to Jesus. And of course, that's what we should be doing all the time. And again, so they say that the thing proceeds from the Lord. They recognize, well, this is God. We cannot speak unto thee, bad or good. 
But Rebecca is before Rebecca is before thee. Take her and go and let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass that when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, you see with Muslims today how they are very devout, the devout ones are very devout, obviously, um, but they will quite happily get their mats out and they will pray towards Mecca. And, you know, we, we've got people at work who will, will do that. You know, and typically they'll go into a, a room away from other people and then they'll get the mat out and they will, they will pray. What a challenge it is for us to have the privilege of praying and speaking to the God of heaven. Notice what he does here. He's not ashamed. He's openly praised to God and acknowledges and worships God. I mean, so obvious was God's working in his life that he couldn't... There was no suggestion here that he was going to hide it. And then verse 53, And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. And uh, Laban sat there kind of smiling. (laughs) And he gave also to her brother. There you go. That's what he was waiting for. And to her mother precious things. And they did eat and drink, he and the men that were with him, and tarried all night. And they rose up in the morning, and he said, Send me away unto my master. And her brother and her mother said, uh, Let the damsel abide with us a few days, uh, at least ten. The world loves to hold on to us. Doesn't want to let us go. See how much more they can get out of us. And after that she shall go. No, no. When, 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 that, when that call comes to leave the world, we need to leave it behind. And he said unto them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebekah and said unto her, Will thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. And they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said unto her, Thou art our sister, be thou the mother of thousands of millions. And let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. <laughs> yeah, that's still to come. During the millennial kingdom we will see all of these promises that have been made to Israel and these prophecies that have spoken over them will come to pass. Israel will indeed have victory over their enemies and over all those that hate them. And Rebekah arose and the damsels and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. And they took, sorry, and, and the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And now, coming back into the land now, we, we find that Isaac came from the way of the well, Lahiroi. It's the, the living one that sees, is the, the translation of that place, of that well. For he dwelt in the south country. Now Isaac doesn't know anything about this. This is all news to Isaac. He doesn't know that this, this envoy has been sent to try and find him a, a bride. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at eventide, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. I tell you, we've got ten camels, we've got all the servants, we've got the entourage, all now coming back, and he sees these people coming towards him. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes when she saw Isaac, and she lighted off the camel. I think the commentators suggest that the actual wording in the Hebrew is kind of, she kind of pretty much fell off the camel at this point. It wasn't kind of a graceful disembarking. It's like, for she said to her servant, what man is this that walks in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it's my master. Of course, she suddenly realizes that this is the one that she's going to marry. So she immediately gets off the camel. She takes a veil and covers herself. 
And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into her mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah and she became his wife. And he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is such a, a beautiful picture that's given to us. Again, just to give you the quick summary, Abraham commissions Eliezer to go and gather a bride for Isaac. Eliezer qualifies her by a well. She agrees to marry the bridegroom. He gives her gifts and she joins her bridegroom at this well of Lahai Roy. Now, do you remember we saw in chapter 22 when they come down after that situation on Mount Moriah that Abraham returns to his young men as they rose up but, but there's no mention of Isaac. Isaac's edited out of the text until this point. You see, we don't see Isaac again until he's united with his bride. Just as after Christ had gone up to Mount Moriah, the same place. Christ then returns to his father and he's seated at the right hand of the father until the time that he's united with his bride. There's, interestingly, a number of Gentile brides that we find in scripture. Eve, of course. Rebecca, we see here. Asenath, that's the wife of Joseph in Egypt. Zipporah, Moses' wife. Rahab, who Salma marries, Ruth, again, the Moabites, and all of them have no death recorded. Now, if you know anything about the way that these numbers work in Scripture, you know often we have lists of seven. Well, there's one other that's missing there, and that's the bride of Christ, who also will have no death recorded. Now, I'm not going to go through. I'm actually going to leave them in the notes for you to have a look at. Um, but there is such an incredible parallel with the Jewish wedding in the way that the Lord has engineered all of these things for us. The way that the Holy Spirit has come. He's preparing us. He's getting us ready, cleansing us. That there will be this blowing of a shofar of the ram's horn. And then our bridegroom, who has gone to prepare a place for us, just as a Jewish bridegroom would do, is going to come again. And he's going to receive us to himself. He's going to take us back to his father's house. Now a Jew, Jewish groom typically would go back to his father's house and prepare an annex or somewhere for himself and his new bride to dwell. Well, Jesus has gone back to his father's house, as John 14 tells us. He will come again and receive us and we will be with him forever. This is just such a wonderful model of what God, of course, did with Isaac and with Rebekah and the promise of what is yet awaiting us. So there's a number of slides there. For the sake of time this morning, I'm not going to go through them, um, but I'll leave them there. They'll be on the, the web later. Um, you can have a look if you want to. Um, but you just see the wonderful plan that God has put in place. Of course, this is all history. These things happen. But it all speaks of what is going to happen. As again, Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom, will come and claim that bride for himself. The Holy Spirit has gone to prepare that was effectively bought to him through that conviction which the law brings. That beast of burden that can never be satisfied brings us to that place of realizing our need for our Savior. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word that it is so complete, Lord, that it tells the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Well, Lord, we just thank you that you have laid these plans and these models down that we can see the incredible design and your plan and purpose in all of these things. Thank you, Father, for the way you led Eliezer, Lord, right to the right place at the right time. 
Lord, the way your word says that you guide our steps, that the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. And that, Father, we need to just learn to listen to you, to walk with you, to walk by faith and not by sight. Oh, Lord, so many lessons here, so many challenges. So help us, we pray. We need your grace, Lord, to take even a single step forward. But, Lord, we ask for it now. Be with us through this coming week, Lord, in the days ahead. Lord, may we just know your grace more and more as, Lord, we get ready for that wonderful day when, as your bride, we will be united with our bridegroom. We just thank you for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.